Well, welcome back to another episode of NPMA's Bug Bites. We are your hosts. I'm Jim Fredericks, along with Brittany Campbell and Mike Bentley. <laughs> and we're joined today by our special guest judge, Cleveland Dixon. Uh, Cleveland, uh, before we get started, um, would you mind, uh, you know, telling us a little bit about how you got involved in pest control and the history of holiday termite and pest and uh, just a little bit about yourself so our listeners can get to know you a little? Uh, certainly. Uh, first of all, I want to say, you know, thank you for having me. Um, you know, and I, I just want to tell each and every one of you that, you know, as time goes by, you're actually supposed to age. <laughs> you guys do not look any older at all. Cleveland uh, is my favorite guest we've ever had. Yeah, so far he's ranking right near the top. Let's see how how he scores these uh, these papers that we talk about later, and then we'll know. Yeah. yeah. Now, Cleveland, I know I'm looking younger, but you're being nice to these guys with their hair migrating from the top of their head to their chin. <laughs> That's um, all right, That's Brittany. I like to say that I'm outgrowing my hairline. Right. So it's just gravity is pulling the hair down. Uh, I love it. Love it. Well, thanks uh, again, uh, Cleveland. Tell us a little bit about yourself, um, about the history of ho- holiday termite pest and and, uh, you know, and how you got involved in pest control, because we love to hear the stories. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. Um, I started in the industry back in 1992. Uh, I was just looking for a job and saw the ad come up and I was like, you know, I didn't even think about the bugs. I thought about the fact that, man, it'd be really cool to be in people's houses and be able to see what they do for a living and all that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> and just to chat with them. So, you know, the pest control side of it came secondary. And so I started doing that. I ended up working for the company for uh, about 10 years. And then right about that time, the, uh, the previous owner was seeking to get out of the industry and uh, after uh, much labor and, and many lessons learned about financing, I was able to buy the company. It took about a year and a half to come up with a, uh, a reason why I bought it directly from him, owner financed, and, uh, and then it was off to the races. Um, so that happened in uh, 2002. And it's been an incredible journey. I remember my first interaction with NPMA I came into the office on when y'all were on Gallows Road um, uh, in the building there because I was having an issue in a, uh, a condominium on the third floor. He had termites. It was the most amazing thing ever. But of course, we couldn't um, figure out the solution for them at that time. But Greg Bauman very quickly said, you should be on the WI committee. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, you guys are the experts. This is not real for me, but he he encouraged me to get in, in, involved and and I did. And he was the first person to put me on stage that very first year at, I believe it was uh, legislative day. And, uh, and, uh, and it's off to the races from there. It's just been an uh, amazing journey um, for, for me. Um, I've Love the fact that it's created opportunities for me to take care of my family and then some and to create an opportunity for others to actually do this, to, you know, to do the same. And and um, and I'm glad I made that leap many years ago and has spawned into many, many, many friendships that have been fruitful, many life lessons learned within the business and outside the business. It's just a great, great, great industry to be in. 
Yeah, that's that's awesome. And you've been a leader for so long, not only at the NTMA level, but also uh, uh, with the state association, with the Virginia Pest Management Association. And I just find it, I mean, what a story when you think about a technician answering, a, you know, a, a one ad, you know, taking a job, um, you know, kind of uh, what we like to call a happy accident, right? That's how you got into the industry. But then 10 years later, you just, yeah, I'll buy the company, right? Like, it's like, go from technician to buying the company in 10 years. I mean, that's an awesome story. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It's, uh, you know, it's always me. I always, you know, whatever you present in front of me, I always look at how, what are the options that are in front of you? And that's just life to me. You know, what do, what do you have? You know, what are the opportunities that are uh, in front of you to, Actually, not for me necessarily. For me personally, it's really about helping others. And my journey has always been about, man, if I owned a company, I know what it was like being a technician and I know what my struggles were. Well, hmm, if I owned a company, then I can I could advance those opportunities for other other folks and help them see what I see and, and so forth. And and hopefully they'll get to a point where they'll think that what I did was easy and then I can learn from them and it comes full circle. Yeah. You know, one of the one of my favorite things about you, Cleveland, aside from the fact that we both have a fantastic barber, the same barber, I think, um, (laughs) is you are a visionary when it comes to tools of the trade. And I've never seen somebody that has cooler tools in terms of pest control. Um, You know, one day you showed up and we got to do that. Was it the Google lenses? Is that what you had where we were? You could actually you were explaining to me that you had just basically done a virtual walkthrough with one of your technicians, helping them to troubleshoot a problem while you were you had the glasses on watching what they were watching at the same time. Yes, uh, smart glasses. actually used them with Brittany. I I got to play with those. They're awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I was having issues at the site and 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 I called Brittany, said, Hey, you're available. Can you, you know, log in? And and she was able to see what I see and we're able to uh, uh, try to troubleshoot the the issue. Yeah, so wow, that's good. so cool. Yeah, I think that day was a fly issue and Mike took the words out of my mouth and completely agreed, Cleveland. I think you're an inspiration in our industry. And just like you mentioned, you're an innovator. You're always looking for the latest technology. I know you listen to your technicians, which again makes you a great leader because you listen to their problems and you're always trying to find a new innovative way to solve them. So that's awesome. And I'm just glad you bring me along for the ride. (laughs) <laughs> you know what when i surround myself with with folks like yourselves man you can't do anything but learn and and grow from there so it's it's it all goes back to you know hanging around folks like yourselves because i've had individual relationships and uh, with each and every one of you um that i could tell many stories about and everything so I, i'm appreciative of of knowing each and every one of you well, well, before before you get us fired with any of these stories about you know whatever whatever's gonna happen, you know, because our boss is here, Cleveland, we gotta we gotta stay on the on the straight uh, narrow. Yeah, thanks so much for for agreeing to do this, and uh, you know before we, we you know we tricked, I mean convinced, I mean you agreed to come on here and be subjected to uh, the next fifteen to thirty minutes of of nerdy conversation here. Um, I know we had a chance to kind of talk a little bit about what you can expect from this, but just quickly to make sure that there are no questions or anything, you know, each one of us is going to go through and highlight our favorite research article or discovery that took place over about the past month. We're going to about five minutes to do that. And uh, to keep things interesting, we're going to be competing to see who did the best job. 
you as the guest judge get to determine what that is. There is no uh, firmed up metric for how this is graded. So you get to decide in any way you so choose. All we ask is don't tell us who did the worst job because what we found over doing these is that we are a lot more sensitive than we thought we would be and we hold a grudge against the other folks. So for the sanctity of our relationship as a technical team, I think it's good that we don't know who did the worst. You could just identify the one best person. That's that's all you tell have us, to do. Tell us who the winner is and we'll assume the others were a close <laughs> second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it was really hard for you to decide. <laughs> okay, okay, good. Rock. All right. Well, who's first? The way that we usually do this is the person that won last time goes first. So they are in the worst position. Okay. And so our winner last time was Dr. Brittany Campbell. So, Dr. Campbell, would you like to start the show? Thank you, Mike. And Cleveland, this one, I'm not going to lie, it's a bit of a doozy, but I'm going to try to walk you through it. Uh, I love doozies. Oh, I like to throw doozies out there. Uh, so the title of this article, if I can even say this correctly, is A Unique Malpighian Tubule Architecture in Tribolium Castaneum Informs the Evolutionary Origins of Systemic Osmoregulation in Beetles. I know. And now my time is done. Let me start the timer because that was what already about five minutes. So this paper came out of a journal called the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And the researchers come out of the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. And so this paper was about Tribolium castaneum. That is the scientific name of the red flower beetle, a beetle that we're super familiar with. It is a worldwide store product pest, so definitely an issue not only in the United States and an important beetle. So it's estimated that 25% of our global food production is lost to insects, and a huge part of that is lost to this particular beetle species. And of course, we know that in our industry, pesticides continue to receive a lot of scrutiny, they get phased out. So we're always looking for really novel methods of control. And that's where this paper kind of comes in. And it's a, a very complicated paper. They actually tried to figure out the evolution of these beetles and uh, by looking at their mouth and tubules, that means their kidneys. But I'm not gonna get into the evolution. That's not really important for uh, the control side of things. I really wanna discuss what this paper found scientifically and how that can impact the control of this pest potentially in the future. All right, so what they did is they took these beetles, essentially cut them up, and they found that uh, these beetles actually had eight different neurons in their brains that regulated these diuretic hormones. So these hormones that make the beetles urinate. So they dissect them, they look at a bunch of genetics, and then they find out the genes that are controlling these hormones and they turn the genes off. They literally figure out how to stop the genes from working. And they found that when they turn the genes off, that uh, the beetles would actually urinate less. But then if they injected the beetles with these hormones, they would urinate almost uncontrollably. So they figured out the pathway of these hormones, how they essentially worked in the beetles. 
And uh, the next step, so while they're interested in the evolution of these beetles and everything, the next step that they want to, and have already started on, is to work with a chemist that can take these hormones and actually synthesize them and mimic, create artificial hormones that we could essentially somehow get into the insect. I don't know if it'd be like an insecticide or something. Somehow, obviously there's a lot we have to figure out. But if we could get these beetles into the hormones, the goal is to essentially make these beetles pee themselves to death. So they would urinate constantly. They would get incredibly dehydrated and would urinate to death, which is really crazy. When you think about our pesticides now, like they basically target the insect's nervous system, but a lot of insects have similar nervous systems. So the problem is when we think about our pollinators and other insects that we don't wanna target, uh, unfortunately, when they're broad spectrum, we sometimes kill insects we don't want to. But this is so specific to this beetle. Uh, these hormones are so specific to this beetle that really only these beetles would be the only beetles impacted in essentially peeing themselves to death. Uh, so it would be super specific. It'd be a, a, an incredibly novel control method. This is the first time I've ever even heard of something like this happening. So they're in the really early stages of this research. I've identified the hormones, have started working with another chemist, um, but essentially it would be a really unique, cool way to kill bugs. And that's it. Very, very interesting. Um, I, I get to ask questions, right? Yes. Ah, uh, yes. So if I understand you correctly, um, well, they figured out how the hormones causes them to pretty much pee themselves to death. Um, they're working on now how to uh, transmit that into the actual beetles themselves. That hasn't been developed now, right? Currently, they are doing it directly. Exactly. Yeah. So this paper just came out, just identifying the hormones. And there's a lot of other information in the paper. So they've identified the hormones. And then, I mean, just think about, you know, sometimes pesticides take years and years to develop and go through the process. So this is like very first stage, figured out what the hormones are. Then we have to figure out how to synthesize similar artificial hormones. And then the next step would probably be bringing a lot of other chemists or pesticide manufacturing company to actually figure out how to get these hormones into the bugs. You know, I love the creativity of science, scientists. This is a uh, very interesting. I already got a brand name for the product when it comes out. We're gonna oh, tell me. Yeah, let's hear it. Pissed off. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Like you know, interestingly enough though, um, the food, so I can imagine this would be used for red flower beetles in like a, in like a grain silo. So the, uh, you know, you'd be using pissed off, but all of the flour in that grain silo would be pissed on. Yes. So. <laughs> I thought about that too. I don't know like how much they urinate. Like, uh, is that going to be an issue? I have no idea. <laughs> so I was trying to write down the title of your, um, of the article. No, it's not going to happen. <laughs> don't even, I even try go it. back to say you know what does these words actually mean because i couldn't even spell it out but uh, i thought about breaking it down i was like it's just too much i'm just going to explain the paper i don't even think i can explain the title <laughs> you're like all i heard was i'm going to talk yeah. today about supercalifragilistic expialidocious <laughs> that's right. Uh, that means about as much as the title. You know, that, that's one of the reasons why, and Jim's pointed this out before, too, 
some of these titles of papers are so ridiculous and they're so specific and full of crazy science-specific language that it's almost comical. So that's why we read them, just for the pure comedic value of how ridiculous some of these titles are. You know, they're ridiculous, but from a science point of view, there's a reason for that, too. Mm -hmm. So I, rem I remember specifically in, like, sophomore year at Millersville University, go Marauders, um, and my, in, like, my botany class. And it was the lab, and we had to write up a lab report. And the, uh, the title of my lab report that I wrote was Photosynthesis. And the, and the professor handed it back to me and said, this is not a lab report on photosynthesis. You're going to need to write me a book on photosynthesis. Instead, focus your title exactly on what was done. And that's, and that's what they do in these things. So they are comical, but there's a reason behind why it's done. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot of time spent in crafting that very short descriptive title for sure. So. Yeah, you're very much taught in scientific writing how to church it up and make it sciencey. <laughs> well speaking of comical uh mike i think you are next in line all right well i'll go ahead and solidify my win now because we're going to be shifting gears and slowing down on the science train a little bit here so uh after uh my paper that i covered last month that was all on virology i may have jumped into the deep end of science a little bit too hard so i'm going to stake to the shallow end of the pool uh, for this month and, and get to a, a little bit less science heavy paper. Uh, so this is a research article that was published in the scientific journal Nature in April of 2021. And uh, it was by a team of, it was nine different researchers, which we're seeing more and more common nowadays, a lot of collaborative studies. The title of the paper is High and Rising Economic Costs of Biological Invasions Worldwide. Now, before I get into the description of the paper, give a really quick terminology lesson here before we get the study, just because there's some terminology that's often interchangeably used and there are some pretty specific meanings to those things. So really quick, when an organism manages to find its way out of its native range, that is where it's historically originated from and it ends up in a new environment and it becomes established there, we typically will identify it as an alien species. That means it's, it's non-native to the area, but it's become established. At the point at which that organism starts to do harm to the non-native environment or the native things that live in it, that's when we usually start talking about it as an invasive species. So it's doing bad and harm to that non-native environment. So for the rest of this talk, we're going to be talking specifically about invasive alien species. So kind of combining those two, they're somewhere where they shouldn't be. It's not their original area and they're doing harm in those places. Now the harm with these non-native critters can be huge in some cases, have devastating effects, completely wiping out uh, native plants and animals, introduce deadly diseases, uh, contaminating and damaging food, such as the red flower beetles we just talked about, and destroying structures. To combat these effects, a lot of money, as we're about to find out, is spent on control efforts, and an even greater amount of money is typically lost due to damages. So the study that I'm summarizing aimed to provide a global assessment of the true cost of biological invasions over time to allow us to better identify and understand trends in global invasions. The hope here is that better understanding these trends would potentially help us in our effects to control them. Uh, studies in past have usually localized and, specially in, and specifically honed in on maybe one specific taxa or one geographic region or one narrow time frame. So the goal here was to develop this comprehensive global database to document and track economic costs of invasive species across taxa and regions 
over time. Most importantly, it could be a database that continuously be added to, so it will start to give us a more and more uh, broad picture of what's going on. So to do this, they looked at 19,000 different publications from 1970 to 2017, and from those 19,000, they selected 1,900, about 1,900 that were robust enough and had enough information to, to include in this database. And through a lot of complex statistical modeling, they combined all of this data to provide a glimpse of what these trends looked like over time that these and these trends that were accounted for different variables, things like inflation and things like that. So whenever they looked at increasing or decreasing costs, those were accounted, inflation things were accounted for that. Now, a few of the really important costs and trends they pointed out, the first one, and um, we're gonna get to this before we get to the top 10 list of most costly invasive pests. The first was from that time range of 1970 to 2017, the cost of invasive species averaged nearly $26.8 billion per year with costs increasing over time, hitting a peak of about $83.3 billion from 2000 to 2009. Now there was a slight dip in that trend from 2010 to 2017, but despite that dip, the average annual cost of invasive species increased at a rate of more than threefold three per decade. The total invasive species costs to the global economy uh, totaled nearly $1.28 trillion in damages and control efforts. When we talk about total costs, it's both in the damages that they've cost as well as the amount of money that was spent on trying to control them. Now onto the thing that everybody probably wants to hear about the most, which was the top 10 list. Um, there's a ton of information that was covered in the study, so I'm not going to summarize everything in our brief time here. But what I do want to point out is of the top 10 list, they, they looked at three different groups of taxa, invertebrates, vertebrates, and plants. Invertebrates were considered to be the most costly at $461 billion total over that time frame. And four of those top 10 costly invasive pests are common structural pests. Coming in at number five was the red imported fire ant, number four, Formosan termites. Number two was commensal rodents, so they combined both rats and mice. The number one was specifically 80s mosquitoes, but mosquitoes as a whole. So four out of the top five were structural pests. Now, they, they pointed out a lot of other really interesting things, but just a couple things that I want to close on here. First off, they identified that the costs of damages by invading species were about 13 times higher than the expenses associated with managing them. So they were doing more damage than what it cost to actually try to control them. The damages have also historically increased at a much faster rate over time than the management costs have, suggesting by the authors that this gap has the potential to continue to widen, meaning it's going to continue to cost, they're going to continue to cost more damage than what it would be to control them. Now, it can be really hard to see past the immediate cost of management plans to recognize the long-term value and investment potential that you gain uh, that comes with being proactive in terms of pest management. You know, these trends highlight the need and value for a proactive management plan uh, that can avoid costly invasions down the road. Now, many of the most dangerous and damaging pests are in fact successful as invaders because of a simple fact that they've adapted to survive with humans. This means our neighborhoods, our businesses, and even our homes are the ideal environment for them to survive. Ultimately, this study did focus on data from a global scale, but it certainly underscores the importance of establishing a proactive pest management plan at home to avoid costly and even deadly pest issues in your home or business down the road. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, as you were talking, I'm sitting here thinking the question that came to mind is the the trends and how fast um, 
these invasive species are, are multiplying faster than we are able to control them. Uh, was there any specifics with respect to that, um, why that's happening? Is it the globalization of travel, ease of travel and, and um, the different, you know, just people are just more uh, uh, mobile than before? Yeah, so, it, I mean, you touched on the three most important things. So like I said, they pulled out a ton of different data and information here, and the whole point was to identify these trends to help kind of curb some of these things, and you hit the nail on the head. So what they estimate is that based on the trends, because it is starting to increase, even though we did see a slight dip in costs and damages, there is this overall increase at about threefold. Um, and that they're expecting that by the next decade, it's going to cost on average a trillion dollars a year in damages and costs for control. And they attributed that to three major things. That's increasing global trade and transport. So the more we become effective at sending things around the world, they're going to hitchhike and go along with them. Land development. So the more we continue to move into areas and overdevelop land, it kind of leaves them nowhere else to go but our, our residences and structures and then increase awareness and reporting. So the more we become aware of these problems and establish things like this database, the better we get at reporting those incidents and issues. And uh, so we can potentially see the uptick from there as well. well. Thank you kindly. Very, very informative. I'm glad you guys are able to break down this information in layman terms, because it's extremely helpful because if I was to read it, it'd be like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so thank you, thank you, thank you very much. You did a wonderful job. Like that, that statistic that you threw out there um, that the authors quoted, the cost of damage, it's 13 times higher than the cost of control. It's so, crazy, right? Yeah. Now, the question is, so it's two ways to look at that, right? Like, um, it's if we would just control them, we could, it's at 13 times, you know, savings, so to speak. Or maybe not enough is spent on control. And because these pests are still pests, right? And so mm -hmm. maybe that shows the disparity as well. I think there's two ways to look at that, which could be interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, that some of the things they looked at, you know, they really tried to dive into a little bit, interpret some of the data for where there was that dip. And they were looking at, you know, I mean, they even identified that some of these costs were greater than the, the GDP for some of the countries where they were experiencing some of these things. I mean, it's absolutely insane, the, the overall cost for some of these countries. And they were looking at what governments were potentially investing and if that had anything to do with there was any correlation there between between you know what they're investing to try to establish these control measures and how much damage was actually happening all right well thank you very very much so cleveland as mike mentioned earlier um the winner from the previous week the current reigning nerd king or queen um goes first because we feel like that's the, a disadvantage there um, and we feel like the last spot, the cleanup spot, is um, has an advantage because every single time so far, um, the the last person has won. So I'm saying this and will likely jinx it. Um, but just so you know, Mike and I had to play rock, paper, scissors before you got on to see who was going to get this spot. And I won. All right. All right. Let's see what you got. So, all right. Uh, the title of this one is The Effects of Dehumidification on the survivorship of four sausage species. So this research was performed by Abina Okran and her colleagues at Oklahoma State University and will be published in the Journal of Economic Entomology uh, later this year. And the reason I chose this paper is because I really like to see real practical research published in scientific journals. Um, Brittany's paper earlier described some like 
early re research into a, a problem or a system that has huge potential for pest management products in the future. And I think that is really cool. Um, but this paper is actually going to talk a little bit about something that is useful for PMPs today. So um, psocids are um, a group of insects containing about 5,500 species that are commonly referred to as bark lice or book lice. Um, and despite the fact that psocids or book lice don't bite, um, research that was performed actually in the last 20 years or so has shown that parasitic lice, like head lice, actually share a common ancestor with book lice. And therefore, um, some taxonomists will lump them together into the same order, an order called Socodia, um, which, by the way, should be noted, is not the same as the crazy plans that our team of entomologists come up with over a bottle of Southern Comfort. Those are Soco ideas. This is Socodia. Okay. Yeah, just want to make sure we clear that up. Uh, so, 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 are important pests in stored grains in particular, where they can result in contamination, damage, and even possible rejection of the commodity. And they can be a concern in warehouses, museums, even homes. I'm sure um, you've encountered them through the years. Um, and uh, they're actually, book lice are actually one of the most ubiquitous pests that no one seems to know is present in their homes. A few years ago, Matt Bertone, um, a researcher at NC State, did a study in which he determined that um, he wanted to know what arthropods were present in North Carolina homes. And out of nearly 200 homes inspected, almost every single one had book lice present. Um, so they're more common than we really kind of think of. Um, and since these pests are so small, they're often overlooked, right? Um, but in recent years, commercial control and grain storage has become especially difficult since many populations of sosids are developing resistance to certain pesticides, including some fumigants like methyl bromide and phosphine. Um, and it's known that uh, sosid infestations often occur in locations where moisture is an issue. And so this research sought to determine what humidity levels or uh, levels of drying are required to kill sosids. Uh, so what the researchers did, pretty simple. Um, they exposed all life stages of sosids, so eggs, nymphs, and adults, um, for four different species um, to three different levels of humidity, either 43% relative humidity, 50%, or 75% relative humidity. Kept them at a constant temperature, 30 degrees Celsius, which is about 85, 86 degrees Fahrenheit, um, for different time periods. They'd go back and check to see if they were alive or if they were thriving or if they were dying. So uh, in a nutshell, here's the results. All of the sosids that were kept at 75% relative humidity increased in population size after two weeks. So 75% humidity, sosids are just fine. But the lower humidity levels uh, were lethal to sosids. Um, so 50% humidity, 43% humidity. Uh, the eggs were a little bit more tolerant than the nymphs and the adults, the dry periods. But bottom line, all life stages of all species were killed after 16 days at 50% relative humidity. Um, now, one of the most common recommendations that PMPs make to clients uh, when it comes to book lice infestations is to lower the humidity levels. Um, so this research lends credence to our common recommendation, and it provides a little more data to help 
set customer expectations. So what I mean by that is if you're, you know, if you explain to your customer that you, they should lower the humidity levels or buy a dehumidifier for their basement, um, they should expect to see control after about 16 days following lowering that humidity level to 50% relative humidity. Um, and additionally, this information can also be used, of course, in grain storage facilities to help supplement pest management efforts um, through IPM measures. So in addition to chemical controls, also mechanical controls or dehumidification. So bottom line is this, um, I think, you know, a pest management professional's professional knowledge of pest management science can help deliver data-driven recommendations for the client um, that in this case can result in better control of one of the most common pests encountered, and that's book lice. There you go. Thank you, sir. You know, so the um, when you're installing a dehumidifier in a home, um, refresh my memory on the range in which you, which is of humidity levels where you should be, where you should keep it. Yeah. It's, um, so, fifty percent is usually going to be one of the default settings on a, on like a just a household dehumidifier. Right. Um, that's a good balance between too dry and damp. Right, because you want to maintain some humidity in a home. In fact, some heating uh, heating systems have humidifiers installed to help increase that humidity, right. so it doesn't get too dry. So, fifty percent is probably you know is a is a very comfortable range uh, for people in a house. And my assumption would be, uh, did it separate the studies between the humidity levels in an open environment versus the sources that are. Uh, inside something that's within the structure because it yeah, what, it, yes ahead. that's it <laughs> um it, well in this case so this is again like despite the fact that this is very practical knowledge that we can take and apply mm -hmm. um, it still took place in a laboratory you know in a in a climate controlled chamber in a petri dish right and so um it isn't necessarily that net the very next practical step which would be you know studying 50 houses and looking at SOSID levels in houses. Um, that would be the, the next step. But I think what it does do is it gives us the data from the laboratory that, um, uh, that reinforces the recommendation that we've been making for years to our customers. And, and plus, to add to that, just controlling the humidity levels in a home has, it's an additional long-term benefit, and this is one of them. While it might not be to 16 days given certain situations, um, over time, it reduces the uh, the ability for them to be able to thrive and, and become an, uh, a longer term issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Thank you, Jim. All right. My pleasure. You guys laid it on thick. This is a lot. This is tough. Wow. Um, you now I'm sitting here thinking, uh, man, as soon as you were done, I, you know, the music started playing from Jeopardy in my head <laughs> as to how to pick a, how to pick a winner. Um, uh, Brittany, you did a fantastic job. Um, I, you know, listening to your talk, it, it really uh, uh, gets me thinking more about how, you know, we, we get into in business of pest management, we, you know, get into my day to day, but then when you think about the science of it and how the active ingredients are are 
really and the modes of action and all that kind of stuff, how it actually controls the uh, the particular pest that we're targeting. Um, this just reignites that energy with respect to it. So, so thank you uh, for that. Um, um, the, you know, I love to travel, right? So, uh, uh, Mike, just listening to your talk, it just, you know, if, you know, it's one of the things I think about when I travel is like, okay, you know, I remember when I was coming back from uh, Jamaica. Um, oh, I can't tell that story. Never mind. But it's the USDA. If the USDA calls us after this podcast and's like, we need to talk to uh, Mr. Dixon about that beetle he brought in to the US. <laughs> I won't give him your personal information, Cleveland. Don't worry, buddy. Got me. But anyhow, yeah. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is a tough one um, because they all interest me on different levels. It's kind of like a apples and oranges kind of thing. So I need to take it to just make a decision on Oh, you suspense is killing me. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It is. It was such a big mix of like really different ideas this week. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know what? I am going to have to say that the winner is going to be Brittany. Come on. Repeat winner. Amazing. Man, our first ever back to back winner. Oh, that's good. Because Cleveland last week, I'm telling you, when I had not won last week, I uh, I told Mike and Jim I was close to quitting. So I thank you for renewing my confidence. And I will say I was a bit sneaky, Cleveland, because I know you on a personal level. I know that you're an innovator. And this was an innovative science. So I was thinking a little bit. <laughs> you got me. And, and, and to be honest with you, when you went and for you to start, and to start with that title, I'm like, what in the world did I get myself into? <laughs> as you, as you explained everything, it, it, you know, while I can't um, necessarily uh, uh, recite everything that you discussed, I, I get it. And when I get stuff, then yeah. I can build upon that. And that's what that was helpful with. And that's the reason why I enjoyed the talk so much. Every talk was great. Uh, added a lot of value. It, I'm going to be thinking about each one of the thoughts, well, each one of the talks, even after the podcast. Um, but if I had to choose one as a winner today, um, I would have to say we're going to have to be a little pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I feel like we need to go ahead and tell the researchers we got to trademark that. <laughs> right. I, I uh, yeah, that was just really strong paper, Brittany. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah, good job. Yeah, well explained. So that's a wrap for another edition of NPMA Bug Bites. Brittany, where can our listeners go to learn more about the research that we discussed here today? Please head on over. If you found this super fascinating, you want to take a deeper dive into any of the papers we talked about today, head on over to our Pestology blog at NPMA pestology.com and also be sure to subscribe at the bottom of the homepage. Just put in your email and you'll get regular updates when we release new uh, pestology blog articles. Awesome. And if you like what you heard, don't be afraid to leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback and be sure to subscribe and like the podcast channel so you don't miss the release of another new episode. 
Thanks, everybody, for listening. NPMA Bug Bites is the industry source for the latest in science news and pest control research and is brought to you by the National Pest Management Association. You can learn more about NPMA, including careers in pest control, technical, and business resources, or links to the science discussed on this episode by visiting npmapestworld.org.